0: One of the most exciting books in the Bible is Revelation. A lot of people like it. It's one of those books that starts like a good book, right? kind of starts low, but it builds toward a very glorious climax. It begins with the Apostle John, who, of course, is exiled on the island of Patmos. He was put there by the Roman authorities because he was faithful in preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And we know that while he was on that island of Patmos, John received a series of visions that laid out the future history of the world. How helpful. And there's a verse in your Bible, you can look in chapter 1 here, there's a verse in your Bible that is really helpful as it lays out the future history of our world. And it really summarizes the entire book of Revelation quite well. Look at Revelation 1, verse 19. Because the Apostle John was told by King Jesus himself to write. He says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So there's your three-point outline if you're preaching the whole book of Revelation. There you go. Jesus told you. It's inspired from Jesus. But the point is there, notice that that little simple outline from chapter 1, verse 19, tells you that the things which you have seen for John was chapter 1. Of course, that's past tense. And then the present tense, things which are, are referring to the letters to the seven churches there in Asia, uh, being chapters two and three, and then Jesus told John to write the things that are going to take place in the future. These are these are things future history after John, and that's all the way from John or Revelation four to twenty-two. So that's the book of Revelation for you. If you if some some of us time, sometimes we struggle in in interpreting this book, I understand that it's a challenging book. And by the way, not all of us agree on this. A lot of Christians disagree. In fact, even even in a small congregation like ours, you need to be aware that we're not all going to agree, and that's fine. In essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, diversity in all things love. So this is one of those non-essentials. So be careful you don't turn this into an essential. It's not. But We can love each other. I love you, even if you disagree with me. And so we need to acknowledge that this is just one of those books that probably poses more serious and difficult interpretive challenges than, than possibly any other book in your Bible. And as a result, there's at least, by the way, at least four interpretive approaches. And uh, these you'll find these in a, in a good study Bible, by the way. So let me just introduce you to this, because I, I know some of, you, some of you do agree with me, and uh, some, some of you won't agree with me on my particular approach so let me introduce you to this the ESV study Bible has has a good introduction to these four approaches I've put them on the screen here for you the the first one is the preterist approach which interprets revelation as a description of first century events that happened uh, in the Roman Empire Uh, this is not I didn't say that this is in the study Bibles okay now there's a problem with this particular approach I hope you can pick up on this, because this view here actually conflicts with with the book's own claim in chapter 1, verse 3, which Jesus says this book is prophecy. If you had a look, you can look yourself, right? So the book itself is an, is interpreting the book for you, right, in chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Jesus says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So, if, if someone has this particular approach, my question for you would be, on what authority do you come to this approach? Because King Jesus, who to me is the great authority on this matter, says this is prophecy. And it's it's impossible to see all the events in Revelation, by the way, as already fulfilled, because today we're going to look at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which clearly hasn't happened yet. That certainly didn't happen in the, the Roman Empire period. The second approach is the historicist approach. Again, I'm quoting from the ESV Study Bible, which, which by the way, they don't, they don't tell you where they stand. They're just giving you the approaches. They're trying to be neutral. Okay, so if this is your approach, I hope it's an accurate one. But uh, the historic approach understands the literary order of the visions to symbolize the chronological order of successive historical events that span the entire era from the apostolic church to the return of Christ and the new heaven and earth. End quote. Now, again, there's a problem with this particular approach you need to be aware of here. See, that method there robs the book of Revelation of any meaning to the original audience. So whenever you interpret Scripture, you need to take into consideration who's the Holy Spirit writing to. It has a context. Context is going to be very helpful in as you interpret Scripture. So bear in mind, it had, that, that particular approach has, is not helping the original audience in the first century. And then there's the third approach, the idealist approach. Again, I'm quoting. This is not my words. This is, uh, so this, this approach teaches Revelation's visions symbolize the conflict between Christ and his church on the one hand, and Satan and his evil conspirators on the other, from the apostolic age to Christ's second coming. So you just need to be aware, if this is not your view, please be gracious to those who do, right? I know people who have this view. So the book contains neither historical allusions nor predictive prophecy. This view, by the way, ignores Revelation's prophetic character, which King Jesus, chapter 1, verse 3 says, that is the case. And by the way, if you carry this to the logical conclusion... It severs the book from any connection with actual historical events. I hope you see that as a problem. And and, and so as a result, it becomes just merely a collection of stories designed to teach spiritual truth. Of course there's spiritual truth, but it's more than that. And then there's number four, the futurist approach, which, by the way, insists that the events that go all the way from chapter 6 to 22, are yet future. That's why it's called futurist approach. And and so those chapters literally and symbolically depict actual people. It it portrays literal, real events yet to appear on our world scene. And so, by the way, it's only this view that does justice to Revelation's claim in chapter 1, verse 3, to actually be prophecy and it also interprets the book by remember the hermeneutic i told you this this is interpreting the book according to a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic just like you should do with the entire bible it's consistent through the whole bible so we come now to uh this this particular chat you look at this little diagram on the screen i put here for you we come now to what's called in bible doctrine the second coming of christ which all healthy Christians hopefully agree on. It is, after all, considered a fundamental of the faith. The return of Christ is a fundamental of the faith. I hope you believe in this. It's very comforting truth. So so we're coming now toward coming toward the end of the book of Revelation. You can see that line coming down to earth. There is the second coming of Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is showing us today. Now, here's our theme. Very powerful comforting theme as we as we think about this christ is going to return he said he would return he's going to keep his promise here's our theme that god providentially rules over the kingdoms of men and will accomplish his sovereign purposes regardless of human or demonic opposition and all of god's people should stand and shout hallelujah you should because we are in a messed up world. <laughs> we are in a dark place right now. Uh, this world is not moving toward utopia. <laughs> no, we're, we're going the opposite direction. Like, you remember what the Apostle Paul talks about in Timothy? Yeah, we, we, we are in those times when we're going the opposite direction, when men will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, and the world is just degrading, It's not getting better. And so this is comforting to know that God is still on his throne. He's in charge. He's in control. And so in Revelation 19 here, there's a lot of praise taking place. We see this praise taking place in heaven, and it's reaching a climax. And you say, why? Because there's been a lot of bad stuff happening in chapter 6 all the way to 18 bad stuff why is there praising and celebration in heaven i'm I'm so glad you asked that question and here's why friends because god is going to properly be honored christ is enthroned the earth is restored to its lost glory and so heaven is rejoicing friends because history is finally going to reach its culmination as the true king of this universe is going to establish his kingdom on on earth And so this time, theologians typically call it the second coming of Christ. A lot of good news here. So, because the second coming of Christ is considered a fundamental of the faith, which hopefully all Christians agree on, here's what one one author had to say this. This is an interesting subject, because look just how powerful this is. I'm quoting from a book here. It says this. It is claimed that one out of every 30 verses in the Bible mentions this doctrine. To every one mention of the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. Eight times more than Christ's first coming. 318 references to it are made in 216 chapters. Whole books, like First and Second Thessalonians. And whole chapters, like Matthew 24, are devoted to it. End quote. Do you see the importance of this doctrine, friends? God loves this doctrine. God wants you to know this doctrine. So, I'm glad we get to talk about this today. If you look at Revelation 19, the very first verse, you have the Hallelujah Chorus. No, not handles. <laughs> not handles Hallelujah Chorus, this is even better. I, if if that's possible, it, I know that's hard to believe. But uh, notice they are singing. Revelation 19, verse 1, because it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! No, not that. Probably not. But anyway, what are, what are they singing? It says, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, you need to understand what they're singing. If you were a good Jew, you would know this. Because Hallel means praise. Yah means God. Yah is actually short for Jehovah or Yahweh. So, what does that mean? Heaven's celebrating and praising Yahweh. Now, if you know what happens in chapter 6 to 18, some of you might be wondering, why is all there this celebration taking place in heaven after all this bad stuff happens on earth? Well, I'm glad you asked, friends, because let's, let's read. Revelation 19. Because we, we got this crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Look at verse 2. Here's your first reason. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God for you, His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's at least five reasons why heaven is celebrating in this passage. Number, notice number one. We see here in verse one that God is glorified because full salvation has come. Full salvation has come. Heaven's rejoicing because of full salvation. Now, notice I've added the word full. Because verse 1 mentions salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, you need to understand something in this context, friends. Because this glory and power belongs to God, and it is put on display for the universe. Now, salvation there uh, please don't confuse that word with the word justification. It's not referring to that punctiliar moment in time when you were declared to be right with God. That's not what this is talking about. It is true, according to Luke chapter 15. Heaven does rejoice over lost sheep who are found. That's true. but That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about full salvation, the end product if you will of your justification friends is glorification and none of us have arrived there yet and so heaven rejoices that one day eventually think about it friends you will be conformed into the image of Christ fully and finally sin removed no more flesh that's a reason to celebrate and that's bringing honor and glory to God. And that for that reason there, heaven is celebrating. But number two, why is there celebration in heaven? Because justice is finally provided. The world is screaming these days for justice, right? we got whole movements on this. They're just looking in the wrong place. All bad theology based on it, too, by the way. God believes in justice. Notice what verse two says, because it says His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute. Which, by the way, that was chapter seventeen and eighteen. The great prostitute is this this Babylonian system. It was an economic, or will be an economic system and a religious system. It's both. And it's going to be judged by God. So heaven's rejoicing because God's judgments. Notice the description of God's judgments. They're always true. They're always true. And they're always righteous. In other words, God will do what is right. And that is evidenced here by the destruction of wicked Babylon. That whole system you see in chapter 17 18 will be destroyed. And so, Babylon, by the way, is defined as the anti, identified, sorry, as Antichrist system that is going to seduce the the world to actually believe Satan's lies. Remember, it's the dragon behind it. The, The father of lies is behind all that, and it's going to be destroyed. Justice is provided. But number three, heaven's rejoicing because rebellion is ended. Yeah, it's going to end one day. Because verse 3 says, Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And by the way, since the Bible says, notice that that verse there, verse 3, the smoke rising up forever and ever, that's indicating to us that this judgment is something that's final and it will be irreversible. And there's no second chance. So the destruction of this last and most powerful empire in human history here marks the end of human rule and begins King Jesus' rule. And that's why the rebellion ends. And so this rebellion, the rebellion that began, may I remind you, way back in the Garden of Eden, that's when rebellion began. Is finally ended here. Well, minus Revelation chapter 20. There'll be a temporary rebellion. And there's going to be no more false religion, no more injustice. But number four, heaven's rejoicing because God is in control. God is in control. In these verses, we see the hallelujahs, the praising Yahweh, ringing out from all the residents of heaven. Did you notice that? You have the 24 elders who are the representatives of the church, I believe. You have the four living creatures who are probably a, a, a type of angel. Uh, they're, they're celebrating this as well. And, and together, all their voices together are praising Yahweh. And they're showing their agreement with, with what God has done to that economic and religious system called Babylon. And so the next, notice the, next the text has a voice there calling all believers in heaven to join in the praise of Yahweh. And so as a result of the praise to God, it's interesting, the Apostle John described the sound there like many waters. In other words, it's kind of like going to a big waterfall. You ever been to a big waterfall? You just get this massive choir of sound coming out of the noisy waterfall. That's the idea here. It's loud. It's powerful. It's impressive. And then number five, heaven's rejoicing in verses 7 through 10 because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Oh, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Heaven's been waiting for this. Jesus has been waiting for this. And you need to understand something about about weddings, friends, because it's really helpful to understand this, that a marriage was the single greatest celebration and social event in the biblical world. It was. There was nothing more important on their social calendar than going to weddings, and they made a big deal out of this. You need to understand something about Jewish history here, friends. See, the the wedding preparations and celebrations were more elaborate and more involved than we typically do today. I've never been to one here on earth like this before. So please consider something. There's three stages to a Jewish wedding. And and this is the background here, okay? First, there was that betrothal period, or what you might call the engagement. This was an arrangement, by the way, by both sets of parents. Those of you who aren't married yet, imagine that. Those of you who are married, imagine that. Both sets of parents got together and decided who you were marrying. That's what took place in that period. The second stage was what was called the presentation stage. It was a time of festivities just before your, the actual ceremony took place. These festivities could last up to a week, it, it, depending on how rich the families were. might even be longer. And so it, it depended on the, the social and the economic status of the, of the bride and the groom. The third stage was the actual ceremony, which there would have the exchanging of vows. And at the end of that presentation, uh, the groom and all of his attendants would would go to the bride's house and take her and all of her bridesmaids to the ceremony. They made a big deal out of this. And and then after the ceremony would come the final meal, and then following that would be the consummation of the marriage. It was a massive, huge, important event. And so, that's a little bit of the background here. Heaven's making a big deal out of this marriage. And the entire heavenly chorus here is praising God because all of the preparation is complete. And the marriage of Christ has come. They've been looking forward to this. This was something betrothed in eternity past by God the Father. Presented in the Father's house. The church is now ready. The the bride is now ready for this wedding ceremony to begin. It will overlap, by the way, with the start of the millennial kingdom. Going to stretch out throughout the thousand year period. Finally consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 21. But in the new heavens and the new earth, the, the bride concept, by the way, Is going to expand to include not just the church, but also all redeemed people from all ages. You see, because you you notice there was guests mentioned here. Who are the guests who've been invited to the marriage supper, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. They They are ones who are actually distinct from the church, because a bride is not invited to her own wedding, is she? No, it's the bride who invites. The guest to her own wedding. That's of course. Uh, and so these guests represent Old Testament believers, if you're wondering. And you, but then some people ask, well, why are church-age believers granted this, this particular honor of being the bride? Well, the answer is, a sovereign God got to choose that. right? He has the right to do that. That's the way he's purposed it to be, that... Uh, And so, in the end, there's not going to be, by the way, any. there's no such thing as a second-class citizen in heaven. All believers are going to enjoy the full glories of eternity. And so there's a lot of celebrating taking place in heaven. And then Revelation goes on to tell us, in the last part of this chapter, of what happens on earth. So let's read, starting in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Then I and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of earth with their na- armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army and the beast was captured with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That ends chapter 19. So what's happening on earth? What's happening on earth in the future here? Notice the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills His promise. He comes again. King Jesus appears in verse 11. And how does He appear? Well, notice what the Bible mentions. We see, number one, Where's he coming from? He's coming from heaven, according to verse 11. Now, by the way, some people get the rapture and the second coming of Christ here in this chapter confused. Some, some people equate Matthew 24 and 25 with the rapture. It's not the rapture. This event here is not the rapture. And, and you say, well, how is it different? I'm glad you asked, because when you read your Bible... In John chapter 14, Jesus tells you it's different. John 14, He says it's really different from Matthew 24 and 25, because Christ comes for His saints at the rapture. Remember what He said in John 14? I will come again, and I will receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a wonderful promise. But at the second coming... If you read, like, Matthew 24 and 25, for example, he comes with the saints, as he says here in chapter 19. So in the rapture, the saints go to meet Jesus. Second coming, the saints are coming with Jesus to different events. They're not the same. Christ meets the saints in the air in the rapture. He takes them to heaven. Second coming, he's descending with the saints from heaven to the earth. So they're not the same event that... that Revelation 19 is talking about. And so when Jesus comes from heaven, notice, notice what else it mentions. It says, he will ride a white horse. Now, why is Jesus talking about a white horse here? Because this horse was, horse, a white horse was traditionally, by the way, ridden by a victorious Roman general, and they would have their, their triumphant procession into Rome showing off the glory and the triumphs of Rome. And you say, well, why white? Well, white symbolizes the absolute holy character of the one who is riding triumphantly here. King Jesus has accomplished his mission. He is triumphant. And the one riding the horse, of course, is holy. That's why it mentions that. But there's more to King Jesus than that. Notice number three. He is called faithful and true here. Faithful. King Jesus is faithful. He will accomplish everything he said he would do. Remember, Jesus also said he is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this is really appropriate. You say, well, why Why is that description of King Jesus appropriate? Well, look at the number four. It says that he will judge and make war. In other words, friends, King Jesus is both judge and executioner. Uh, normally, we don't like doing that on earth. You don't want to give somebody on earth that much power and authority. But remember who he is. He is the one who is faithful and true. The one who is faithful and true then can properly execute both being judge and executioner. You know he's going to get it right every time. And he's going to execute the ungodly here. There's a second main point we see here. because It also describes how Jesus looks and what he's doing. Because, number two, King Jesus is going to look amazing. I mean, it's trying to describe his eyes, for example. They're like... Flaming fire. That sounds familiar. We heard that way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1. Notice, they are like flaming fire. That's figurative language. And the point being, friends, is nothing escapes the all-knowing gaze of King Jesus. He sees all, knows all. And therefore, nobody can hide. Nobody's going to get away with their evil. Justice will be done, and his judgments are always just and always right. They're always accurate. But verse 12 tells us he's wearing many crowns from many rulers. Diadems, by the way, is a crown. The ESV calls them diadems. And what's the point there? The point is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to him. So it shows his ultimate authority over all the so-called powerful people of planet Earth. They're just puppets. Because King Jesus is the real authority here. He's wearing many ruler's crowns. But not only that, his robe is dipped in blood. His robe is dipped in blood, according to verse 13. Did you see that, verse 13? He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Yeah. That's a picture of judgment. The blood, by the way, is from all the slaughtering that Christ has done with His enemies. And you say, well, why are His garments here splattered with blood before the battle of Armageddon has begun? Well, that's because this is... This isn't actually his first fight, but it is going to be the last. His war clothes are bearing stains of many battles, in fact. This isn't Christ's first battle. He's already fought against sin. He conquered. He's already fought against Satan and conquered. And he conquered death when he rose again. And on this day, his clothes are going to be stained. And it's described as somebody. In a wine press, squashing grapes. If you ever wear a long robe and you're squashing grapes, you're going to get some grape juice on your clothes, and they stain. That's the imagery here. His robes dipped in blood. He has conquered. And number four, notice his titles here in verse 13. His titles are the Word of God, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. You say, what's the point in all that? Three titles there. Those titles are clearly identifying him as, what, what do we typically call him? We call him the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we put all three of those together sometimes? Lord means he's master. He is master of this universe. He, he's the one who holds high rank. Jesus is His earthly name. The Holy Spirit told His parents, Name Him Jesus. Why? Why is He called that? For He will save His people from their sins. But He is also the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. He's all of that, and you put that together, and it shows who who Jesus is. He is full deity but he is also humanity. He has two perso- sorry, two natures. Two natures. By the way, he's going to keep those two natures for all eternity. And then number three, we see that King Jesus will bring his people with him. The saints will come back with King Jesus, because you have these armies of heaven. And who are they? Who are they? Well, they're not... Well, angels are going to come too, but the armies of heaven are the saints. They're composed of, number one, the church, the tribulation saints that were killed during the tribulation. You have Old Testament believers, and of course there's angels in heaven as well. And notice what they're wearing. The Bible's very descriptive here because they are dressed in fine linen. They have fine costly, well-made clothes. And it's white, and the clothes are pure. Very descriptive. God wants you to understand that they're clean. They don't have blood like Jesus robes. Like Jesus robe. These, these, these saints are clean. Their, their flesh has been removed. The sin nature is gone at this point. And notice they're following Jesus on white horses, it says. They too are following Jesus. But they're they're very different from King Jesus. They're unarmed, it says. They're unarmed. The saints of heaven coming with King Jesus will not be fighting. But according to chapter 20, we will reign with Christ. We see number four, the King Jesus is going to avenge His enemies. He will avenge His enemies. Verse 15 talks about this. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So notice, the One who spoke the universe into existence has the ability and the power to speak it out of existence. His from his mouth comes words of death. By the way, notice these words of death are for the unbelievers. And by the way, the the sword is. I mean, don't picture Jesus having some big broadsword coming, you know, out of his mouth. That's weird. Okay, that that's not the point. It's fig, again figurative language. The sword symbolizes Christ's power here to kill his enemies. How's he doing this? He does it with the power of language, of the Word. He is the Logos of John 1. And so Christ's judgment here is described kind of disgusting language if you understand a wine press. I don't think any of you have a wine press, do you? Right? A wine press is the place where you would You know, after you go to your vineyard and you cut the grapes off your vine, you throw it into the wine press, and then you get your children to play little games and run around squashing grapes. And so you squash all the grapes to get the juice out. That was was the purpose of a wine press. And so notice the enemies here are going to be crushed like a grape in a press. Very descriptive of what Christ's words are going to do to the unbelievers number two we see here that christ will rule his kingdom but notice how how is christ going to rule his kingdom it's it's described as ruling with a rod of iron in other words he's going to put down any rebellion and when king jesus puts down a rebellion he doesn't mess around it's swift and he does it justly it's just it's quick it's done. <laughs> you don't mess around with King Jesus here. And then number three, he's uh, the king of this universe gets to invite some guests to the slaughter. Notice, well, who is he inviting? The very birds he created. He says, come and eat from my slaughter. In verse 17, he invites the birds. By the way, verse 18 there makes it clear the slaughter is an all-inclusive slaughter. Uh, nobody's left out of this slaughter. No one's left out. It's small and great. It's it's people in high economic status and low economic status. It's It's the generals of the army and the privates of the army. Everybody gets slaughtered who's in the army. And so, by the way, for a Jew, you need to understand the Jewish mentality here. There, there was no greater indignity to have your body exposed to the elements and have birds come and eat your flesh off your body. For them, that was, that was, that was horrible thought. They wanted to be buried. And so that's why when Jesus died, you had some of Jesus' friends, they, they wanted to quickly put Jesus in a tomb. He had suffered enough indignity. So this is the fate that awaits God-hating rebels. And then number four, we see here that Jesus will finally defeat the Antichrist and his army. The end of chapter 19 here. So these verses here are depicting for you something happening at the end of the tribulation where you have this frightening holocaust That that is unparalleled in human history. Nothing like this has ever happened before. We often call this the Battle of Armageddon, but in reality it's not much of a battle, friends. It's it's no contest at all, really, is it? These the armies who assemble against King Jesus have no hope of winning. It's going to be an execution. It's going to be a great slaughter. It's going to be a dominant slaughter. It it is a one-sided contest. And then the chapter ends in verse 20 by telling us that Jesus is going to transform the bodies of Antichrist, who is called the beast, and the body of the false prophet. Why is he doing that in verse 20? Well, look, look at verse 20. Because verse 20 talks about the beast or the Antichrist was captured, and with it the false prophet who is who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So Jesus is preparing these two men. These, these are normal human beings. He's preparing them for their eternal punishment. And so Jesus banishes them to the lake of fire. Remember the Bible tells us in chapter twenty, hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire. This is their eternal punishment. And and then all unrepentant rebels does doesn't matter if you're if you're a demon or, or a person, this this is the eternal punishment. And so the lake of fire is going to be the ultimate destination for Satan, for the demons, as well as unbelievers. It's a real place. And so, friends, don't lose sight of the point of all of this. Sometimes we look at a passage like this and it's really hard to read. It's hard to preach. In some ways, it's not good news. But don't lose sight of why is this here. Remember, this whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus is revealing Himself to you. There's great purpose in this, friends. So, may I remind you the proposition? That God, well, this is my proposition anyway, that God wants you to believe that He rules over the kingdoms of men and will accomplish His sovereign purposes despite, regardless of human or demonic opposition. It doesn't matter who the Antichrist is, or his false prophet, or the great dragon who's behind the Antichrist. The father of lies is not going to win. He's a temporary prince of this world. He is powerful, not to be messed with. But he doesn't get to win. King Jesus wins. And so these these are the sort of truths you need to be reminded of. You need to believe. They are to bring you hope and encouragement. When everything in this world seems to be out of your control, remember, God is in control. God is sovereign, and He is ruling and reigning over every part of His universe. I think it was R.C. Sproul that said, there is not one molecule in this entire universe that is rebelling against King Jesus. Not even one molecule. No part whatsoever is outside His control. So may that truth bring you great hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that You are in control and You do reign supreme even over Satan and death and our flesh and this world and as, as we look at the news and we read books and we, we read blogs and we listen to podcasts and and we talk to our neighbors and our friends and our family members and we think all is lost and what hope is there? This world is dark. Where's King Jesus? May we may we re- may we be reminded of this. King Jesus is coming again and will fulfill His promises, all of them, all of them. May we believe that and live like that. And until He comes, may we remember we have great purpose here. While we're still here, may we fulfill our purpose and live for His cause. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.